Welcome. You're listening to the 3.0 edition of the Brain Fuzz Arts, Music, and Culture podcast with Joe Kamusa and Matthew White. Today in episode 62, Joe and Matthew explore different aspects of the art sausage making process. Things get mixed up. The art news stack is tackled. Matthew hacks away at the topic of cryptocurrency. Joe provides the audio pick of the day. For more information and links to resources on this episode, you can always find the show notes at brainfuzzpodcast.com. And now, from safe and secure locations at Brainfuzz Northwest and Brainfuzz Southeast, here are Joe and Matthew. Last time we talked was with uh, Leslie Parks Bailey. That was episode... 60 or 61? Episode something. Who's counting? With Leslie Parks Bailey, and um, I just had a I had a great time doing that, Joe. And uh, what was interesting about it, I thought, was uh, getting that perspective of living alongside the creative brain, both in yes, her father yeah. and her husband. Totally. We talked a bit about how one stays ah, focused, inspired during strange times. Yeah. I, I've heard a lot of uh, artists, musicians, I don't know, successful, like people with followings, coming to embrace almost this uh, this reset button in terms of, okay, no one else is doing anything. I can finally breathe a little bit. So I kind of hoping and I'm thinking that in the months and years to come, hopefully we have like a bloom, a renaissance of sorts, because people have had some time to a relax a little bit as much as one can (laughs) during a global pandemic. Um, Maybe thinks through some things, uh, woodshed, so to speak. And, you know, you wonder versus just, you know, we put our albums out in April, then we tour and you do that for (laughs) 10 years. You know, there's going to be some times when you have to be on autopilot because, you know, no one is, is, uh, Superhuman things change, and uh, we don't know what people have grown accustomed to, or what people, how people want to consume things moving forward. And we've always, we've always shied away from talking about our projects, independent, individually and independently. What we work on, um, we kind of, we try to keep the firewall between brain fuzz and the personal projects. And so today. Now, we haven't done this before, but we're going to mix things up with uh, a bit. Well, we were uh, talking offline, which I love old business jargon. Um, we were talking some, it's probably months ago now, um, like anybody does. You know, you usually have somebody that you can share, uh, you know, work in progress, et cetera. But uh, you were working on what would be, could be two-pronged. On one hand, it's it's the bane of most artists' existence, documentation yeah. work, which is, yeah. is very important. And then also the other side, which is also very important, and most people get a little, can get squeamish about promotion, yep. PR, marketing, all those words that you know artists don't like to ever admit to, a yeah. lot of them. So I was thinking, for one, there's a balance there between what do, what do you do with that? So in your case, you had spent, what, couple months working on a large 
I, I'm going to put words in here, but in my mind, like wall drawing, on-site work. I don't know if that's an installation since it's on the wall, but this was a mammoth undertaking. There was scaffolding involved, lots of planning. Um, you know, and, and how do you document that? You know, it's yeah. hard for you to even get good photographs since, you know, it's the sheer scale of this thing. So you turned to uh, film or a movie, you know, I mean. Yes, you, yes, you're exactly right. It was twofold. Uh, there was, of course, the project itself. And I had, in some ways, a perfect opportunity to do something that I had not done before. And then I realized that's not going to be seen by anybody. So then the other piece of that is the documentation, as you said. And it's something so many people that make art, you would rather be working on your next project than documenting the last one. Yet, the nature of this culture and this world in which we live is that self-promotion is required. It's necessary. Right. And when you have limited venues for showing work or getting, getting your work out there, talking about your work, and then there's the possibility that no one else can enjoy, think about, or talk about it. And they may not want to, and that's fine. But there has to be the choice, the option right. out there. And so that's what I, that's what I did with this. And uh, the, the project was uh, Transients. And it was a graphite drawing on a wall. It's a two-story wall. I had never worked in that scale before. So it was a challenge for me. It was something I wanted to do. And um, then I, then as I'm working on the project, I just kind of struggled with, is this something that sits on its own? Or is this something that, something that I want out there? Well, I mean, because you didn't just like, shoot video, you know, on your iPhone, um, you know, it was scripted, you had a good voiceover, you put a lot of thought into it. And then I, you know, what was inspiring to me was your uh, ability to be vulnerable. Cause I know you were struggling with what, what does this sound like? Does this sound, you know, way too serious, um, indulgent, you know, all those things that go through most of our head whenever, yeah. you know, even just posting something on Instagram and you have to kind of, uh, step away from that and think like, what do you look at when you're on there? And, you know, why is it that shots of somebody's studio floor or, you know, ephemera, why is that interesting? Um, so you have to assume that once in a while, somebody out there, uh, is going to be interested when it's your studio floor, or in this case, a really tight, uh, well done, you know, promo piece <laughs> to use that, uh, I think artists, we mm -hmm. probably need to all use those words a little more and get comfortable with them because I do think we all are like, oh, it's kind of yes. kind of a soft promo. Yeah, well, I, look, I had to be honest with myself. It's like, you know what? I don't know how many people are going to see this. I could probably count on, well. Yeah, know. even take pandemic yeah. out of it. Like, I'm yeah. sure this is in a private residence who, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they do want to have a nice cocktail party for you, but but still, you know, probably not. But uh, Some people have, have seen it, have seen it, didn't know about it and so on some level it's it's i like that i like the privacy of it and i like the the fact that you can live there and contemplate it and then the flip side of that though is that no one will know about it no one will see it and then no one will realize that oh, it's not just a bunch of pencil marks on a wall there's actually some thought that went into this and, the, and there's a um 
I don't want to get into art speak, but there's <laughs> there's there's, th- there's thought that went into it, and and you know I want to communicate that thought process because I think that that also is part of of it and of this this um, this movie. So it's only a few minutes long, um, but I was wrestling with how do you meet those challenges? Is there a new way to do it? I hadn't done anything like this before. And, you know, yeah, I, you're right. There's some there's some vulnerability there. And then there's sure, yeah. the editing, the self-editing and the, um, look, face it, we're not all getting invited to artist talks, okay? Right, right. <laughs> so if you have something to say and you want to say it and you don't care if people disagree or uh, think some of those things like we were just saying, you do self-promotion and um, right. you think of the worst things that people maybe could could say. But I, I don't see moving forward how that how things change um, otherwise. I, th- I think I think people who make art are going to have to get over some of that and also get past some of the just pretty little Instagram shots because yeah. You know, there's always going to be the gee whiz factor. Well, there seems to be from recent conversations that I've had, you know, venturing out, you know, past the bubble, um, which has been amazing and, and frightening and exhausting all at the same time. But, um, you know, the phenomena of, you know, art made for Instagram, you know, there's a lot of stuff that photographs really well. And I, I'm wondering, and I've noticed some of the folks that I've been speaking with, agree like yeah but what does it look like in person uh i'm not yeah. saying it's all a sham and house you know um all mirrors or something but um you know there is something still when you see work in person sometimes that you did see or see online you're like wow yeah that's uh that's warped and that's held together with some spit and yep. a piece of gum and uh which so i've used know. before actually <laughs> well, hey, that's your that's your medium but um but you're right i think you know it, it is, uh, I, th- I think for certain, maybe it is a generational thing for, maybe it is easier um, for those that are known no different, everything being online and communicating online. But obviously for, for some and for the extremely introverted, um, it's a lot of work to not only have to make the work, think about the work, write about it. And now you have to become like a YouTube personality in a way with high production value yeah. or you're just skewered, you know? So, um like I said, I, I commend you for sticking your neck out. Um, but, you know, this is up your alley, too, though, because, I mean, you you you're define yourself as, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Cross-disciplinary. Cross-disciplinary. Yes. So. Um, multidisciplinary, you know, too. Multi. You, yeah. Multidisciplinary. Yeah. Uh, extended. Extended. You could, you could resuscitate that term. Um, but, you know, so I think that also feeds you in terms of. You know, you're on the on the brain fuzz uh, behind the scenes sausage tour. Matthew is certainly the uh, the techie behind the scenes sausage, sausage tour. tour. Yes, that's yeah. that's going to be when we do unveil a little little teaser here. When we do unveil the brain fuzz trivia, one of the one of the probably the third prize winner will get a behind sausage the scenes tour. sausage tour. Yeah. We'll be partnering with uh, Pine Street Market and uh, coming up with a brain fuzz kipper. 
It could happen. I love that. Maybe a oh, brain fuzz beer, because, you know, that was the thing for a little while. Yeah. Everybody had to have a co-branded, we'll just buy you a beer. Ah, <laughs> uh, we got some forms you have to fill out, though. That's true. Yeah, run brain those fuzz legal. legal. Yeah. yeah, brain fuzz legal. The org chart is really, really fleshed out here. At brain well, it's, it's a flat org chart. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> that's important to us. Um, you know we're doing this with absolute... Zero interns. It's unheard of in the arts world. Yeah. <laughs> well, and no call for help. What was it? Call for volunteers? I think I sent you one earlier. Oh, yeah. That was a good yeah. one. Owner-operated. So, yeah. uh, so folks can find this on your Instagram and I'm assuming your website. Yes. TheMWGallery.com. And there's a little series and projects and a link that says Transients and... Um, Interestingly enough, let me repeat that, themwgallery.com. I had someone once, um, they thought that I said, the BMW Gallery <laughs> dot com. Try as you might, it, there, there's no foolproof domain. No. But I have, so I embraced a long time ago having this kind of, I, I really think this virtual property is an important idea and it's interesting to watch over time how the arts unlike so many other fields uh has not still kind of is stuck in a certain place and i and i wonder how much how that is is um is going to continue to change i don't know i've had some interesting conversations recently about that and um we'll see i don't know we'll see i am not saying specifically it's going one way or the other. I think there's a little something for everybody and as it should be. Yeah, I agree. And it's, let's face it, everybody needs content for their either news stream or, you know, Instagram, what have you, Twitter. Um, so anything that's new and has the whiff of new, fresh, exciting fatty is going to be a thing. I mean, yeah. You know, I think that's the perfect segue to move forward to our art news segment. If you're okay with mixing things up a little bit more. The Art News Stack. First, let me point this out. Artnet, May the 11th, 2021. New York's auction week comes roaring back to life at Christie's. $211 million contemporary sale led by a prized Basquiat skull painting. Perhaps more notable than that is the fact that nine crypto punks was offered. This set of nine digital images minted in 2017 by Larva Labs was estimated at $7 million to $9 million dollars. And yet the work doubled expectations, selling for $16.9 million. Software developers Matt Hall and John Watkinson, who co-founded Larva Labs, created a collection of 24 by 24 8-bit style pixel images. I think, and you and I have talked about this in, offline, and here we are online. We're going to talk about it some more. But... What's interesting is that this work was minted in 2017. 
2017. And this is not something that just was made in response to capitalize off of the NFT craze. This was minted in 2017. So from Zero Hedge, eBay plans to enable crypto payments and break into NFT market Monday, May 3rd, 2021. eBay is exploring opportunities on how to enable selling of NFTs, which has revolutionized the sports memorabilia business. That was interesting. And I didn't, I have to say, like, can you explain that to uh, well, those of us that are sheltered? Yeah, uh, so, like specifically the sports And I had to kind of look at that myself because I was, all right, what's uh, a good way to look at this is to consider, and there's a, there's actually another article on this, and it, it's, it's uh, that Tops. Do you remember the company Tops, Joe? I do. The baseball card and bubble gum yes. magnets. Yeah. They actually debuted earlier this year their first NFT baseball card collection. Yes, that's a thing. So what it is, is rather than having your pack of baseball cards, you essentially have a digital pack of cards, okay? Okay. That that you own, and you own you own that. Right. And, and yeah, there'll be copies out there, and other people can view it and whatever, but that's yours. So just as you or I might have had them in the protective sheets, plastic sheets that were in a, <laughs> in a, in a binder, binders full of cards. We would trade those. I, w- I would be the owner of that card and then trim. What this is, is ra- this is a digital ownership rather than that plastic binder of, of cards. So that is just one example of a sports memorabilia NFT. All right. So, Okay, yeah. Why this story is important, I think, is that it's big enough and it's legit enough that eBay is willing to put some skin in the game on this, have a play, so to speak, in the in the sports memorabilia. But I think that that tells us a lot about where this is going and that there is something to it. No. It's all dudes. Is it? Largely. You think so? It sounds it, yeah. yeah. Well, the sports memorabilia thing and then, you know, collecting. I'm telling you, like, collecting and hoarding seems to be heavily, skews heavily made. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, we, I, we, need to, we need to send this to the uh, Brain Fuzz Research Department to uh, kind of hash this out. But that's true. It says, with PayPal share surging partly due to its embrace of crypto and purveyors of NFTs, which already includes the NBA's popular Top Shot series, reporting millions of dollars in sales. It's clear eBay needs to make a convincing attempt to break into the NFT market. It's hard to see beyond the hype, right? Uh, because and it, it, there's just been so much work that has. But that's what happens when you've got lots of supply, right? Plenty of people to jump in. Again, going back to these market terms, supply, demand. Right. Scarcity. Scarcity. Those are big numbers, though, Joe. They're big numbers. And like I said to you the other day, though, my question is, you know, it gets sensationalized with these, you know, again, huge number. My question, does it translate to actual cash in somebody's bank account? Okay, here's how that works. I sound skeptical, don't I? I, it's, I you should be. You should. Everyone should be. Skeptical, always skeptical. 
Uh, okay, here's how it works. It's just like trading, and a lot of people don't understand this, so it, it's, it's, it's why we're going through this. It's just like if you were own if you own shares of a stock and you have that in your stock account and then you decide that you want to liquidate and send those funds to your bank account. It is the exact same thing. So uh, Coinbase, if you were to use Coinbase, you're, you would use Coinbase to transfer, uh, convert your Ethereum into, into U.S. dollars if you wanted to. Right. Now, you could keep that along with other cryptocurrencies in your account, and you just trade. And Yes, it is a market, so you have to wait for the value to um, be where you want it to be. Right. And, and I just, that. That's just but, one of those where I'm still uh, – we were jokingly talking about the uh, – way back in the 90s when uh, stock options would uh, fall from the sky like rolls of uh, paper yeah. towels, which was uh, epitomized in a classic Simpsons episode – I don't remember that one. Which Bart's one was that? And you're like, here, you want some stock options? Take them. And he's just pulling them that. like right off of a paper towel roll. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Either that or I invented that in my, anyway, delirium. No, I, no. But, I, yeah, that but, will give me an excuse to go back and search. Yeah. Through. Go through. How many episodes did have they made? Uh, no, I just, I'm sure somebody's making money. Don't get me wrong. But uh, when I, you know, the, the, what gets reported or, or Jerry Saltz will come screaming about, you know, is, you know, like somebody paid, you know, $60 million. Like, did they really pay 60 million? And did the artist get 60 million or do you have 60 million of, you know, maybe, maybe you do have Bitcoin, but I'm still kind of, uh, there are costs associated. Yes. Sure. But there are, um, yeah. And there are trade you have, you know, uh, you have that. So you have commissions and then you have, um, you have tax implications as well. Sure, I mean not I, clear on that, that. So that's of course that sounds that's not different from how the present system works. But uh, that's that's just where I'm still a little like, you know, show me show me the money. Um, I still like now, a check or a credit card personally. Your friend, you have at least one friend who did they hold? You were telling me was a uh, was an early active cryptocurrency uh, trader. Yes. Yes. Was it tr- was he, he would need to voice scramble, and uh, yeah. he would be wearing a hood. Did he cash for, out for privacy? I, you know, I don't know. He's cagey. You can't get an answer. Out really? Of him. Yes, he is a man of mystery. Because if he had held on to it at that time, I think he would have. Um, I think he's probably sitting on a, a fortune. But uh, quiet. If he would like that. to reveal himself, he could certainly uh, go to the Brain Fuzz Instagram or yeah. the private message even. But uh, I do believe he is an hashtag brain fuzz podcast, and and it'll be him on a yacht somewhere. Yes. <laughs> but we we you know we have we have our NDA, so uh, okay, all right. We don't want to out him, but uh, yes, an early early adopter. Yeah. The first time that uh, you know, the first time I realized there was something to it was in Austin, Texas, and the food truck was accepting Bitcoin. This was, yeah, <laughs> this was, and I knew this was. It would that was when it made it would have made sense. Um, I think Austin though isn't as much of a stretch as if like I was in Laramie, Wyoming, and I stopped you know on the side of the road to get yeah, boiled peanuts, right. yeah. and they, <laughs> yeah, boiled peanuts, but. And now, the Brain Fuzz audio pick of the day. All right. 
Okay. Man, that's a that's a hard jump, man, from all that shit to uh, records. <laughs> well, just <laughs> it's all plexiglass vitrines. Um, audio pick of the day, which is uh, always a challenge because there seems like you want to pick something new. It's timely, um, but I I took a different tack this week and was going with things that uh, that are in still in heavy rotation that stand the test of time, and it's interesting. Um, you know, the '80s get a bad rap, and then at the same time, the '80s get a pass where suddenly it became cool all of a sudden, and then it'll happen for the '90s. You wait, but uh, a lot of music that was completely disdained. Um, you know, whether it be a production value or it was a fad or a one hit wonder, that sort of thing. But, uh, this I'm going back to, uh, April of, um, 1984 uh, with the release of, uh, REM's, uh, sophomore debut, uh, reckoning. Okay. Yeah. Which is a, uh, a touchstone for me. Um, saw the band for the first time on that tour. And, uh, I still think it's just a fabulous album. Again, production-wise, it does not sound, you know, like some, quote, you know, indie or Americana. Yeah. No, sorry. Americana's not the right word. Production-wise, it doesn't have that, you know, early 80s, uh, overly chorused uh, and produced, no keyboards. Um, You know, definitely captured the band more their live sound after yep. uh, after Murmur, which of course was a uh, a, a big departure. Um, I think everybody that knew the band live was like, "What is this?" I mean, no reverb on the drums. I mean, it's yep. a complete reaction and and opposition to what was being played. Huge, you know, everybody on the radio had huge drums with tons of uh, gates and and reverb, you know, snare drums that just sounded like firecrackers. And here is this very soft. Yeah. Uh, and yet, if you ever saw Bill Berry play drums live, it's like he was anything but that. Um, so, you know, in they go into uh, Reflection Sound, which is no more, um, in Charlotte, and record. And the great thing, I always love bands. There's all this myth. Uh, depends who you ask, but there were like two uh, batches, either of eight days. So it's either it was 16 days or 20 days. Peter Buck now, of course, says that we recorded it in 11 days. And why is that important? I guess to some people it doesn't matter, but most bands, you know, records take months. Or in the old days when cocaine was plentiful, you know, bands would write the record in the studio. And bands like Queen would just be in a studio for a year making a record. And I'm sure everyone lost their marbles. But so there was something about working fast and, uh, and again, playing a lot live in the studio. And I just think, um, you know, the band had uh, pretty quick success. I mean, they formed in 80. So by 84, touring around in a van, <laughs> by this yeah. point, I'm sure they were in buses, but uh, I still find it pretty inspiring that they were able to kind of, um, you know, pick up the, the crumbs of this network that other bands had laid, you know, Black Flag and Gang of Four and uh, compatriots of theirs like Husker Du, but to, you know, travel around the country playing their music, um, that takes incredible, incredible fortitude and stamina. I can't imagine, you know, being in a van <laughs> that long. I would have gone oh. insane, you know, but, uh, but the songs are there. Um, great production, uh, incredible singing. The vo- you know, the vocals, you know, Murmur was jokingly referred to as mumble. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and then here we get reckoning with, uh, you know, some 
a little bit more clarity and yet still this this aura of mystery which is important uh and 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 or enjoyable sometimes to not know exactly what the song is i'm not one that has to know what what's it about but but that you certainly can feel some things don't go back to rockville that was that was the big single off of this right correct but other than that what was what am i missing uh south central rain was the uh the, the that's off. right yes and that was on mtv and that did something that was a little different in that at least there was a live vocal with the video which you know you kind of think oh big deal why didn't you do the whole song but i guess that is a big deal to suddenly play it all live yeah. but um so the the vocals were live um sung over the backing track um and there's some slight differences so that you know as a viewer i remember thinking that was pretty exciting you know, back then, think about it. You didn't, you weren't able to go online and find demos and all these extra things yeah. that, and every pressing that comes out nowadays, you know, with all these goodies. So, you know, to hear a different, a slightly different version that was exciting to a, you know, a rabid fan. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned, don't go back to Rockville. That was a song that they had played way early in there uh, and in a different, much different arrangement. Um, really? It was much more up tempo. And, and that was, depending on who you who you read but um that version supposedly was kind of a not maybe joke would be taken the wrong way but was kind of a maybe a band just kind of playing around in the studio and they did a rockabilly version of it just kind of on a whim and mm-hmm. Burtis Downs who was the band's lawyer and or I guess you know grew into be their manager just business you know leader uh was a huge fan of rockabilly is the way i always heard it so it just was kind of it wasn't at that tempo but it was a staple of their early live sets if you dust up old you know cassette bootlegs of them playing in some shitty pizza parlor in you know providence or something you would hear don't go back to rockville at like three times the speed um so it's just kind of interesting to hear them um you know, like, because also how uncool would that have been in the 80s in the South to kind of embrace a little bit of the South? You yeah. know, they were never afraid of being from Athens, Georgia, but they yeah. sure as hell were more of like a post-punk. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot on that record. And um, like I said, it still holds up. It gets uh, steady, uh, steady play. Um, and I don't think it's out of a sense of nostalgia. It's not like I go, oh, let me go back to what. It, you no, know, this, you know? this holds up extremely well. I and think. The, then the production, it was Mitch Easter and uh, Dom Dixon, both yeah. fabulous musicians. Mitch, who was in Let's Active, Dom Dixon in a number of bands. Um, and that was the second record that they produced for R.E.M. And uh, apparently there was, an, if I'm mispronouncing this, um, sue me, but uh, the way it was recorded, but apparently there was some binaural recording, which is, I guess, kind of a, I think it's supposedly better than stereo type recording to give the sense that the uh, listener is in the room. I don't okay. know if that's just hokum. It definitely is a pretty open production and on a decent stereo, you know, it's not harkening back to seventies quad or something yeah. like that, but there definitely is some space in the way the harmonies that Mike Mills sings fit in. But, um, you know, like I said, I just thought, uh, actually I really through our, through our relationship, I revisited REM, uh, some time ago, because I still still don't know the history as well as you do. Jangle Pop, and we may oh, have yeah. discussed this. Do you, do you, are you, does that offend you? Is no. it offensive? No. I are mean, you okay a, with it? I mean, it's the same thing as the Paisley Underground and all that. I mean, the fact yeah. that Peter Buck was playing a Rickenbacker and, and playing arpeggios. Yeah. Um, 
you know, through tube amps such as, you know, a Fender and then oddly or later then into Vox's, of course, you're going to get the jangle. Yeah. And that, you know, it just became a thing for writers and people that really don't play guitar or know yeah. much about music. Oh, yeah. that's jangle. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't offend me. Um, are the I birds, think, the birds, are they considered sure. the, the, the fathers of jangle pop? I suppose. But again, you know, Rickenbacker, compressed guitar, 12, you know, a 12 string yeah. guitar largely. Yeah. Um, but you know, the same thing was folk pop or folk rock for a yeah. while. They were under this, you know, again, writers are always trying to, somebody's trying to name everything. And, you know, I remember there was a great, and, and the early interviews with REM, a lot of times it'd be Peter Buck cause he's just hilarious and, uh, very amped up and, um, well-spoken. But I remember him saying like they would call clubs, you know, and say, well, what kind of music is, and they're like, you know, folk rock. And they're like, what Joni Mitchell meets like joy division. Like, what is that? You know? And, yeah. And I think actually that was a Michael Stipe interview. And he's like, and then we would go and play. But, uh, I don't know. I, like I said, I have a lot of respect for those guys and I think they work their asses off, but, uh, you know, I, you bring up a point cause there's definitely bands that hang around that long usually have a couple distinct eras in their career and you know a lot of yeah. their audience changed a few times and some yes, some hung around i certainly kind of lost touch with them for a little while and then i've come back and uh embraced pretty much most of the records um you know without being one of those annoying uh people that just oh play the first record you the, know like that, yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. that stuff's amazing yeah. but uh you know their last record was also pretty stellar um but anyway, that one uh, I just thought, and I was hesitant to do that because I thought that was maybe a cop out. But uh, no, uh, cop out how? Uh, maybe just go into your, you know, some of your desert island type type yeah. picks, and maybe that's a different segment on on brain fuzz. But ironically, the other record uh, that I was going to pick was uh, uh, a couple of years later, but also a, a similar type. Uh, record and it's a similar one in sound but i think i'll save it because i might need it for a, a future installment of this well now let's not uh, if we don't get taken over by uh you know the community that uh, wants to control brain fuzz content and uh <laughs> you can hear them out that you can hear new, them just outside of the safe space they're demanding studio, you can hear new hosts and uh yeah a, a better uh better dental plan for stakeholders more, more sausage um, free sausage Hey, let's not forget that is not a that is not a Howard Finster on the cover. It is a Howard Finster cover painting. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because Talking Heads, of course, did that yeah. as well. But I think Little Creatures came out after. Ah, I'd have I to. need to look that up. But um, it's just it. What is the you know the irony that you know Finster? But that certainly did a lot to bolster Finster's ever growing reputation. Yes, and uh, and that was one I have I've heard Mr. Stipe refer to that cover recently, and he has nothing but regret. And says, you know, he regrets that he ever like altered or had something to do with you know the art interfered with the artist's artwork. He sketched it and then Finster painted it. Correct? I am not sure about that. Okay, but I guess there was just some like it didn't turn out like he wanted to, and I thought anyone that makes anything. I'm sure we'll say the same thing, right? You know, if you really try to analyze and that's for a future, future episode, if but we I think could, if yeah. we could get some clarification on that point from a, uh, from one of our uh, producers out in the field, I'm seeing something from a questionable source that uh, 
leads me to believe there may be some debate about that. I I do not believe that he sketched it. I think there's maybe like putting the song lyrics on. I'm not sure he didn't elaborate in terms of what he did. But it's also probably like, how do you take a painting and make it an album cover? I mean, a lot of times that doesn't go over as well. Well, and you mentioned cassette earlier, and unfortunately, that album art is can really only be appreciated in the album scale. You know, I mean, in a in a on a cassette, I can't imagine. I don't know what that looks like. I haven't seen that in the cassette format. Okay, so Little Creatures did come out in '85. Ooh, no, it is after. Okay, so R.E.M. was first in line with the Finster, at least if I do that just by release dates. June of 85 on Sire was Talking Heads Little Creatures that had a Howard Finster cover, um, thus driving up his price at auction. I never thought about that, but so that, so R.E.M. beat, so Stipe beat David Byrne to the the punch there. That'd be a hell of a, arm wrestling i never even i thought to ask or i I thought it was more and if you have listener if you have contrary please i don't want to be that guy that's just well in my research michael told me i'm gonna go also back to something you said earlier uh just before we uh before we leave you here um i'm gonna go back to something you said earlier one big question i have is the whole desert island thing yeah. All right. That's that we I want to I want to nail that down once and for all. Is it a deserted island? A desert? Is there such thing as a desert island? Oh, good point. Like just sand and no foliage and cacti and Well, there we'll, uh, there must be some islands like in off, you know, maybe Persian Gulf that are desert islands. That right? Gulf of Oman perhaps? As always, thank you for joining us. Uh, you can give us a five-star review, please. Uh, subscribe at your podcast platform of choice. Instagram, Brain Fuzz Podcast. Any post, always, hashtag Brain Fuzz Podcast. And if you have inf- any information on... On the, the- whereabouts of... <laughs> That's right. Uh, or any anything that you could add to, uh, to these insights... Please and if do. you would like to host an episode of Brain Fuzz, If you would like to join the search committee. Send some Bitcoin. All stakeholders are welcome to play a part in the uh, search committee. And, uh, hey, we got some exciting guests coming up. We do. We and do. we're going to – what about the, uh, the Brain Fuzz uh, convention in Austin? Uh, Is that going to happen this year? Postponed. Been- first, due to COVID. So we've had to push that. As always, be sure to visit the show notes at brainfuzzpodcast.com for more information on the topics discussed in this episode. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Brain Fuzz. That's two words, Brain Fuzz. And be sure to leave a thumbs up or a five-star review. Finally, don't forget Instagram at Brain Fuzz Podcast for the rare visual nuggets related to the show. Engage in the dialogue, or just say hello, and use hashtag BrainFuzzPodcast. Right. <laughs>